Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hith Lede. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers, Thorns Matt Court. How you doing? I'm well. Happy for the chance to get away from the uh, Oregon-Colorado game for a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll finish this up by the time halftime is over. Um, <laughs> Probably. Uh, so, um, uh, where ATQ is at right now is uh, uh, I want to talk to Badwater about his trip to San Diego, except uh, uh, some health problems have prevented him from getting on the podcast. And then you and I were supposed to uh, talk earlier, and then um, the Lord decided that wasn't going to happen either. Uh, You've been out power and internet, and I think both at certain times? Yeah, we we had uh, more than two full days uh, a week ago without power uh, through through some of these latest storms that have come through. And And it's been about 55 total hours without power in the last, like, five weeks. So it's been it's been a challenge. And then this morning, they're, they're, allegedly, they're working uh, Xfinity or Comcast is working in our neighborhood to improve our service. <laughs> uh, and so which means, of course, a couple, three hours of down Internet during the day. Luckily, that's generally happening in like the morning hours. So I'm you know, it's not impacting writing about games or watching games or talking to you on the podcast but it's still kind of an inconvenience and it's amazing how these things become part of your life and then all of a sudden when they're taken away there's like this hole in your day and it's like god dang what am i gonna do now yeah i might even have to read a book um never know yeah so listener if this podcast is like 15 minutes long just suddenly (laughs) cuts out uh yeah that's why um so uh uh 
the most recent article that you've written for the site slurms is uh, going over the football season. Um, I am in the midst of um, reviewing all of the UTSA film where new Oregon offensive coordinator Will Stein was the OC at, but I'm only a few games into that project and uh, I don't have much to say yet. So I figure we go through, uh, you know, the, the, the football season review. Um, obviously, I, I, I write about the football team uh, every every week. I slurms you wrote about a third of the you know post-game recaps but like especially sort of going back towards the beginning part of the season you know maybe shed some light on like how some of these games you know how how did these opponents finish up their season and maybe we have a like fuller picture of of what they look like so you know starting out with you know georgia oregon got ran out of the building um against a team that has gone, you know, undefeated and is playing for a national championship. Exactly. Exactly. That game looks better uh, all the time in the rear view mirror. I mean, as good as a a 49 to three beat down could ever look, but it's pretty obvious now in hindsight that Georgia was a much better team than I, I suppose we hoped when Oregon traveled down there to play them. Sure. And I mean, they, they had lost a number of pieces off of their national championship right. winning team. And so there was a, you know, when I wrote that team up, I was like, look, they're missing this piece and this piece and this piece. And, and, you know, it remains to be seen how well they replaced them. And the answer was, Oh, they replaced them real well. They're <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. actually maybe a little bit better. Yeah you, yeah. you know, you're hoping a team like that is, is, will lose those key pieces and have to spend a little time at least rebuilding instead of just reloading and coming right back at you. But Georgia certainly did that. They had no problem, uh, very, very few problems during their season. Uh, as far as you know, close wins and and things of that. I mean, they, they had a couple. You know, they gave yeah, more but, points to Kent State than anyone was expecting. They had right. a close game against a you know not very good Mizzou team mm-hmm. um, that barely made a bowl and then lost it to Wake Forest. Um, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not sure that this Georgia team was as good as last year's Georgia team. Although they've had their their quarterback. Um, the whole time, you know, like they, right. they were settled in at quarterback in a way that they were not settled in at quarterback in 2021. So like that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that side is definitely better. Um, yeah, I, it seems, I, it seems to me from the, you know, the little watching of Georgia that I've done that their defense is not as good. One of the things that shocked me about the national semifinal games was how many points were scored. There was yeah. uh, an amazing, and it's not, I mean, some well, of it has really you know, been a trend over the last, yeah, sure. you know, like every one of the semifinal games with a, with only a couple of exceptions since we've gotten started have either been blowouts or they've been these really high scoring affairs mm-hmm. and it, you know mm-hmm. something about like you know really good teams and then a month to prepare you know they just they find something and get big explosive plays out of them um yeah. they're, they're these haymaker fights it seems like you know we get two or three of them every single year yeah, super entertaining. I mean, they're fun to watch. Um, I, you know, I, I personally like tough defensive games, uh, you know, as much as I do 
guys running up and down the field all afternoon. Yeah. But both of these games were highly entertaining. Obviously, the, you know, the late win uh, for Georgia against Ohio State was was uh, you know pretty exciting. And TCU, I was surprised TCU. You know, they came in with a chip on their shoulder and the, the whole thing about other. Oh, they they sort of have, I guess, the reputation that, that Oregon has had at least in the past that they're you know they're not really very tough and you know we're just going to manhandle these guys. And then you know they came in and, and showed that they could. Uh, go toe-to-toe with uh, Michigan. So I thought that was yeah, uh, that, very that, entertaining. Everything you said about that game is true, although I also think that Michigan really blew it in a couple. I mean, like they had multiple opportunities to sure. to, to score that they didn't, you know, on dumb stuff, you know. Right, that, some, that, some of which I think. This game that can... just as easily could have been a sure. Michigan yeah, well, win. Well, TCU has two pick sixes and, right. you know, Michigan gets a, a what looked like, I think, to everybody but the refereeing crew, uh, a touchdown on a pass, and then they end up turning the ball over instead of scoring a touchdown deep. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, one or two I of those plays the going the other way. They march down the field and, and uh, rather than just run the ball up the middle, you know, they, they go for, you know, this crazy, you know, uh, like a weird sweep kind of play mm-hmm. that doesn't get them in. You know, it's like, yeah. they, they, they be, I mean, honestly, Michigan handed TCU something like a 21-point swing over the course yes. of that game on, on yeah. just sort of dumb mistakes. And, like, anybody's, like, taken away, like... I don't think the takeaway ought to be that like Michigan was outclassing TCU because that definitely wasn't the case. But like, I don't think anybody ought to take away either the the notion that like, you know, TCU is a like a uh, uh, you know an unstoppable juggernaut either. Yes, like, I fully right. expect Georgia to win by at least you know fourteen points. Yeah. Um, I just think that Georgia's you know to get back to the reason why we're talking about this, <laughs> like. <laughs> I fully expect George, you know, like, you know, the athletic had one of these like interviews with anonymous coaches who played both teams, you know, um, all, well, nobody's played both of those teams, but like, <laughs> I was going to say coaches pretty that, hard to be coaches anonymous that Georgia and coaches that played and, yeah. and everyone, you know, almost all of them were just like, Georgia's going to boat race TCU. Um, you yeah. know, Michigan should have, you know, and, 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 and their loss had a lot more to do with Michigan and, and some crazy yes. stuff happening, you know, uh, you know, not, not to say that TCU is a bad team or anything, but like, I mean, look, everybody was watching that team all year long being like, this team's getting away with it, you know? And yeah. like, you know, it, it reminded me of uh, of Florida State, you know, in 2014, which, mm-hmm. you know, I had to do a film study project on and I too, you know, and, and that was one where I was sort of with the fans on, on the like, boy, this team can't keep getting away with it. And then like there teams like that, they they wind up finding out in a hurry, you know, in like one game that goes real yeah. bad. Right. Uh, like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, I guess yeah, we were getting okay. lucky in some of this other stuff. <laughs> yeah. And and I and I, th- I don't know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll have to eat these words, but like, uh, I'm sort of expecting Georgia to do that to them. So I'm sort of expecting Georgia to do that to everybody because you know yeah. they did do it to everybody, and they that's what started they out the season doing it to Oregon. Um, and and, and you know the other thing is like everything that we wrote and said about Georgia, you know, uh, about the game afterwards, where it's like, you know, actually Oregon's offense wasn't bad; they were moving the ball pretty well you know they never really stopped them even Kirby smart acknowledged that in the post-game interviews like we never really stopped them you know they threw a couple uh-huh. of picks and they made a couple of red zone mistakes um 
and that was that you know like uh you know it was really just like the defense getting shredded um which like in a way that sort of presaged the rest of the year oregon didn't finish with a great defensive score and everybody was sort of expecting dan laning to come in and make the defense great and you know that was really true on the other hand it's like the defense you know the defense finished i think uh uh 59 and f plus or something like that you know like about the middle of fbs which like Mm -hmm. oregon's talent level wouldn't predict that but you know, I, I think we sort of found out that a lot of the guys on defense weren't the guys that we were hoping that they were going to be. And, and, you know, it seemed like, you know, uh, some, some, some misses, some injuries, some problems, um, you know, uh, a lot of departures from the, and, and then, you know, just sort of the, the departures that naturally happen when a coach leaves, you know, like Oregon lost all three right. of their cornerbacks, you know, when the sure. coaching, you know, like, you know, and, and, and like everything that goes into, well, first year coaches, you need to cut them a little slack. You know, most of those hit things hit on the defense, not the offense, you know, and in terms right. of like, boy, that, you know, the personnel departures, you know, were difficult. They, you know, weren't able to acquire a transfer edge rusher, you know, who was worth a damn. It was actually, you know, Oregon has, I was reviewing the roster for the departures. So, or so Mace Funa, announced that he is returning uh they had and then the true freshmen of course the the 2022 true freshmen aren't aren't going anywhere they'll be true sophomores in 2023 the rest of the outside linebacker room every single one of them which is i think six different dudes all of them transferred out Mm -hmm. um you know and basically because they weren't getting any playing time yes um and I mean, if you weren't getting playing time, you know, if you if you couldn't beat out Oregon's, you know, starting pass rushers to get onto the field, just like I'm, I'm sorry, dude, it might not yeah. ever happen for yeah, you. Yeah, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong program based on what they're trying to do down there. So it's like you know they 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 had to scramble to find a playable cornerback. They never really had a pass rush, and then their five star, uh, you know, inside linebackers turned out to you know. I don't know if they're in the bust category or if they're in that middle category that I sometimes use where there's like, they're not really a bust, but they're not really, you know, working out either. Um, you know, it was just personnel problems, you know, on the defense. Um, again, and, I mean, that's what happened basically last season as yeah. well. Just like a lot of injuries in that case, not, not necessarily poor play, although there was plenty of that, I think as well, but still, you know, you had, the, especially the linebacking crew guys couldn't stay on the field. Well, it, that's definitely true. But, you know, last year in 2021, you know, the season was, it, it felt a lot more balanced and it felt a lot more like, you know, the ire was being directed at the offense because the offense couldn't stay on the field. And like, and in 2022, um, you know, the offense was really clicking and, you know, in just about every game until Nick's gets injured. And even then it was, was still clicking. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and so it just threw into stark relief that, you know, the defense was the weaker side of the ball. Um, but like comparing the 2021 defensive performance and the 2022 defensive performance, like, you know, they got there for sort of different reasons, you know, but they wound up, you know, pretty comparable, you know, performances. This is just that, you know, in 2021, the offense was taking a lot of the heat um, and, and, you know, they weren't taking any heat in 2022. What it's, you know, excellent offensive performance. Right. You know, that turned out to be. Um, and we saw that in the very, you know, and that dichotomy that I just, mentioned that you know we saw it from game one you know where the offense mm-hmm. was moving the ball and the defense couldn't stop anything yeah um 
So, uh, you know, so then they, they finish up the Georgia game. They, they come back home they get Eastern Washington. They destroyed Eastern Washington. Like, you know, I think expected. Was you know, like seven consecutive touchdowns or something along yeah. those lines. Um, you know, Eastern Washington turned out to be, you know, I, when I wrote up my, you know, prediction of, or my, my preview of Eastern Washington at the beginning of the year, uh, I, I had noted that, that that is a team that has put a scare into a lot of Pac-12 teams over the years, right. beaten, you know, a couple of mm-hmm. them, but I didn't think that, you know, this year's Eastern Washington team was going to do that, um, that, that uh, you know, they are replacing their quarterback and a lot of their playmakers, and, you know, I just didn't think that they looked like nearly the scary team that they had been in the past, and sure enough, they went three and eight, um, yeah, you know, right. they... Um, you know, amusingly enough, one of their losses was to uh, Portland State, who Oregon plays as their opener in 2023. So I will actually be reviewing that game nice. um, as as uh, part, you know, be, uh, as part part of my preview for that team because because it's that's the opener. So I don't get any 2023 games for 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 uh, for Portland, Portland State. State. So yeah. you know, yeah, but Portland State played. Uh, uh, they played Washington, so I'll review that game. And they played, um, nice. and they lost to, uh, they lost to Cal Poly, who had only won one game. Um, oh my god! So uh, yeah, the the poor uh, the poor Vikes. Um, there was a, but like in 2016, arguably Portland State was the best team in the state of Oregon, um, right? <laughs> because I, I think Oregon and Oregon State, you know, combined for like eight wins that year. Right. Um, or something terrible like that. Uh, And and Portland state was in the playoffs, but uh, yeah, I know that this, this Portland state's not that. And this Eastern Washington team was not that. So like, you know, not not a whole lot of data to be taken from there, except like, except Bonix, you know, uh, it's sort of a a ratification of what we saw in the first game, which was like, he's really accurate quarterback. And if he's not being like chased for his life and, you know, pressured into doing stupid stuff, like, He's really good. And then we saw that again against BYU, you know, yes. and that's another team that turned out not to be nearly as good as they were, you know, as billing at the time. Um, right. Yeah. Before the game, uh, you know, BYU was ranked 12th when they came, uh, yeah, right. came into Otson and people really thought, boy, this is the game that's going to be the challenge. You know, this will, this will tell us something. And, it, and I guess it did and that Oregon handled them easily, but they were not the 12th best team in the country by any stretch of the imagination. So no, it takes and, and some of the shine off of the, uh, you know, the big victory there. Yeah, I know. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to say it too loud, but like, I, um, when I was writing my preview for BYU, I was like, this team sucks. Um, <laughs> like, well, and the interesting, the really, actually the really, which like, I didn't want to say that too loud because I wanted Oregon to get all the credit for beating the number 12 team. But like, sure. you know, that's what I was saying. Pretty sada voce or if anybody could like read between the lines, like that's a, you know, that, that's a team that has a good quarterback in Jaron Hall. Um, and then that's it. They're done. Like that, that, you know, their run game sucks. Yeah. Their defense sucks. And, and most problematically it was, they had a coaching staff who thought their run game and their defense was more physical and more dominant than a really was um which is like that's that's really bad <laughs> like that's not a good situation yeah. to be in no. and like um you know there are, you know in the pack 12 you wind up seeing quite a few teams that are like 
oh yeah, we suck in the trenches, but we know it. And here's all the gorilla stuff that we do um, <laughs> to make up know, for the, the like asymmetric. Yeah, right. The asymmetrical warfare stuff. And like right. BYU is like, oh no, we're the you know we're the first infantry man. <laughs> like we're undefeated. We are actually tough guys. and good in the trenches. Yeah. We're we got BRO patches on our sleeves, and it's like, no, you're not. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I picked that up watching him against Baylor, and Baylor was another team that turned out to stink. Um, you yeah, know, geez. out loud, um, but everybody thought was good at the beginning of the year. Like, yeah, no, uh, BYU second game of the year was against Baylor, and they beat him in in second overtime, and everybody thought that was like, or the people who didn't actually watch film thought that that was like Clash of the Titans, man. Like, and then, uh, yeah, <laughs> not no, exactly. not really. Um, but anyway, like that, that was another game, you know, when Oregon played them, um, you know, setting aside like the quality of the opponent, you know, o- Oregon made BYU look as bad as they turned out to be like Oregon yes. just like tore through them. Um, and yet, you know, it was a game in which we saw, you know, like if Oregon has a vulnerability, it's the, you know, Hey, a really good cornerback can hit or quarterback can hit passes against Oregon secondary, which right. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah, that that uh, that was a theme, I would say, of many games this season. I mean, a really good quarterback can hit passes against sure. any secondary. That's sort of the defining quality of a really good quarterback. Uh, I mean, hell, you know, Georgia's got a pretty good defense, and and uh, you know, Ohio State's got a really good quarterback, and they hit a bunch of passes. As we as mm-hmm. we were talking about, um, well, you'd hope you would hope you make them make difficult throws, though. You know, even as a great quarterback, you want him to have to throw into tight windows and all the other, you know, sayings that people use to to describe what you're looking for. But too many times in most of these games, it it was not you didn't need a great quarterback to make some of those throws because the receivers were so open that, you know, your run of the mill quarterbacks could hit them. Yeah, although, you know, that's something that I think also sort of emerges theme and sort of divided well divided a lot of fans who were you know uh, given to frustration from yeah you know what the scoreboard says and what you know your faithful film reviewer will say which is that like teams will hit you know open passes for six yards and it's frustrating but like you're not going to score points six yards right. at a you know, it's, if it's, all you're yeah, getting a, is six yards, like it means that you got to, you know, string together a dozen of those to, to, to get a touchdown without a single right. mistake. And nobody does that. And um, it's a strategy, it's a strategy to win on defense. And I, and I, you know, I get that it's, and it generally speaking, you have to say that it's worked. Oregon's been doing something like this or something like it in many seasons for 20 years. Well, and it does force the other team to, to go all the way down the field with short gains without making any mistakes, any major mistakes, and to make sure that on that when they get to third and two or third and four, that they can make a play there. And that's where Oregon gets them a lot of the times. They, you know, they'll, they'll make two or three of those in a row. And then the fourth one, whoops, now we got a punt. Yeah. So it's like, you know, really the, the, and it's part of the defensive philosophy too. So like, you know, that stuff is frustrating. What you don't want to do is give up explosive plays. And Oregon was actually pretty good at not giving up explosive plays. They gave up a couple and like, but it was like few enough that, that, that like, 
you know, they, they got put under the microscope of like, oh man, you yeah, know, why did that happen? Whoever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's like, hey guys, you know, the thing that you need to be paying attention to is the fact that there was so few of them that you're putting one play under the microscope. Right. Yeah. And like, it's a surprise. And I mean, Oregon actually finished up, you know, in at the end of the year, you know, top in the Pac 12 for fewest explosive plays allowed and one of the top teams in the country. Um, <laughs> you know, um, the, the the and you saw that you know during the BYU game you know going up against a pretty good quarterback um and the other thing is that you know about that game offensively that we started to see that we continue to see for the rest of the year was Oregon winning the middle eight you know and, and really the thing <laughs> right more than anything else is you know well I guess the recruiting um but except for the recruiting the the thing that is uh really like kept my faith with this coaching staff despite like some real stinging losses at the end of the year um, is, you know, how well they manage the clock and move, you know, analytically. And uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that's, that's, you know, you know, in the BYU game, they score a 13 play touchdown drive that takes five and a half minutes off the clock right before the end of the half. And they get the ball back and then immediately go to work and get another touchdown in three minutes to, you know, so that, so basically, you know, Oregon gets the, you know, Oregon scores a touchdown. They go up 17 to seven BYU uh, has a five minute drive. They miss a field goal. You know, Oregon gets the ball back six minutes left in the half and it's 17 to seven by the next time that BYU touches the ball for a meaningful possession, it's 31 to seven yeah. and the game, you know, and they yeah. are basically in desperation mode, right? you know, because that's what, you know, touchdown halftime touchdown gets you. And we saw that over and over and over again. Um, and like the way that you manage the clock so that you don't score too fast, but you still score and you basically run out the clock and the way that you do it is masterful. Yes. It was probably yeah. the number one most impressive thing that I saw out of the coaching staff. The number one most impressive thing that I saw to the team period was Bo Nix's accuracy, which is just like, that was like, uh, uh, you know, finding a jug of water in the desert, man. Like I, you know, after Justin Herbert and, uh, and Anthony Brown, like inexplicably missing passes, having a quarterback who just always put the ball exactly where it needed to be. Like, I didn't know how, like, I didn't know how much I needed that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, and we were seeing that, you know, at the beginning of the year. Yes. Yeah. From the, really from the, I mean, less so perhaps in Georgia in the Georgia game, but, but once they got past that, he was just putting it right on the numbers all the time. And there was so much talk early in the season about, well, which Bo Nicks are we going to get? Are we going to get the good bow or the bad bow? And the, you know, the, the Georgia game brought some of that, out with the you know the two interceptions and people were going oh my god but then all of a sudden then once they got past that you know one pretty good defense um he was just spot on um i think his season completion percentage was almost 72 percent which is amazing an amazing number and not all of those were the kind of dink and dunk throws that we're talking about he put balls there was one that you had in one of your uh, reviews where he put the ball in the in the bucket on right on the sideline where the only person that had any chance to get it was a receiver uh it Not was just on the sideline but like yeah, out of amazing bounds. yeah like like, like the, the guy had to reach yeah right yeah, yeah where the receiver had to reach like three or four feet out of yeah. bounds in order to get the ball <laughs> yeah just like, amazing yeah. 
some really beautiful, amazing throws over the course of the season. So then they go on the road to play uh, Wazoo. And, you know, it's a weird game because Oregon's in control of the game the entire time, but between red zone screw-ups in the first half uh, and then Wazoo breaking out some trick plays and just some, like, damn lucky plays, you know, like scrambles (laughs) where the quarterback, like, flips the ball over the dude's head, you know, like crazy stuff like that. Like that game, if you look at the post-game win expectancy, you know, Bill Connolly's, like, measurement of Uh where it's, like, take out the weird stuff and just look at all the comparative success rates. Like, Oregon is something like a 95% win post game win expectancy against wazoo but it's a game that they wind up winning by three. Oh yeah and then there's a garbage dime touchdown you know from from wazoo after oregon goes up by 10 to cover the spread um <laughs> you know wazoo doesn't turn out to be a very good team you know they finished the the season with seven uh wins and they got run out of the building in their bowl game by fresno boy they just didn't look like they wanted to be there um like i you know frankly uh uh they, they had like I was a little surprised, frankly, to go back and look at their, you know, some of their records because like um, they hung pretty close with Utah. You know, it was only a four point Mm -hmm. loss, you know, to Utah in a weird game in which Utah didn't have uh, Cam Rising. But like, you know, uh, they, you know, they had everything else that Utah needed. We'll talk about Utah a little in a little bit. Um, You know, they they creamed you know, Stanford, they beat Arizona, a team that beat UCLA. And we'll talk about them in a second. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but then they get run out of the building in their last two games by, you know, Washington and Fresno. Yeah. Like a weird season for Wazoo. Um, you know, and they gave Oregon their, their, their toughest game until the end of the year. Um, but then, but then not really, you know, it was more like, I don't know, man, that, that team just has like a real, uh, it's like, they, they figured they can't beat Washington, so they're just going to put all their effort into beating Oregon, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Like, I mean, it's like every year, it's like their bet. They, yeah. It's the game they get up for like the most. I don't. It's it's crazy too because you know it's the smallest stadium in the in the conference, yeah. but it for some reason it seemed intimidating is not the right word for it. But every time Oregon goes up there, it's like you know you're in for a fight, and and there some some years there's no reason for it because Oregon is a much better team in some years than Washington State, well, but they still seem to to be able to play tough. I mean, over the last five years. Um, the the win loss records at home in the Pac twelve. Uh, number one is Oregon at Austin Stadium. Naturally, right. Number two. This is you, you got to guess for who number two is. Uh, it's not a trick question. Washington State. Uh, no, Washington State comes in number three. Oh, okay. Utah comes in number two. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Washington, Washington State, number three. Um, yeah, their their home wow. record is really good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um. Let's take a break there. We, we, we talked about four games. Uh, we'll come back. We'll do the, the next four. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
So Oregon returned home uh, on October 1st to play Stanford, a team that like had beaten Oregon last year. And boy, when I wrote my article and I was just like, boy, this team stinks. Boy, this team just sucks out loud. Um, <laughs> and, you know, every all the comments in my article was just like, I don't believe you. I, I won't believe you that they're a, a bad team until the clock reads triple right. zeros. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Oregon just like, you know, smashed them. Yeah. And I was like, all right, well, you know, <laughs> pay up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Put your money where your mouth is. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I understand, you know, duck fans being like scarred by Stanford, but like, Oh boy, that program is in real trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they're going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to the next time that you need to write about them. So you can talk about some of the the massive coaching changes that have gone on down there and whether that's going to be surprising who who these people are and what, you know, how are they going to help this program? I, so. I, I never thought they'd let go of, of David Shaw, like, yeah. uh, or he'd resigned. I, I don't really know how the politics of that goes. Oh, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to our Stanford. So we, we've been talking to uh, Jabril Taha who writes for the Stanford daily. Who's a real sharp guy. Um, uh, and like, uh, I don't know when, when we talked to him this year, like he was getting progressively more and more resigned about how bad the team was and that no one on campus cared. I think he was oh, feeling no. like pretty lonely that like he was the only person, the only Stanford, Stanford fan, campus, football fan, cared about the Stanford football team, <laughs> including possibly the coaching staff. Yikes. Um, so, um, so, so uh, that would be bad. Know, that would be a bad his, feeling. Like, I don't know. Maybe he's in shock that David Shaw resigned. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, or- Oregon, you know, took care of business against that team. And, and yeah, it'll be interesting to write them up. Cause like, they're really like they're circling the drain in terms of uh, just uh, so many departures, like mm-hmm. of guys that they need, you know, like not, right. the, not, not the kind of transfer that's like, Oh, well, you're not really getting any playing time. I think it's time for you to switch over to a G five school or something like that. It's like, no, that dude's like, you know, most of your starting offensive line and, and like your key receivers and yeah, exactly. It's just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, no. So, you know, that, that one did wind up being, you know, much of a surprise that it, plus like <laughs> the funny thing was that Shaw, like just straight up copied wake forest, slow mesh, you know, yeah, system. Right. Yeah. But by watching it on television, <laughs> like, you know, he didn't get any like staff consultations from, from yeah. Wake Forest or anything like that. He just yeah. watched it on TV. Wrote it on the back of that. an envelope and thought, hey, let's try this. And so I was like, you know, so that game in this sense, you know, it felt like heartening because when I was doing film study on them, um, I was like, okay, so this is how you're supposed to beat the slow mesh. Um, and it was actually funny cause they, they, they didn't debut it in their opener against Colgate. They debuted it against USC, which mm-hmm. like, okay, a new offensive system against Alex Grinch's terrible defense. Like I kind of like it. Like I, yeah. I kind of like that. Moxie. Um, and then they played Washington, I think the next week. And so like Washington had sort of the heads up, um, but their defense also sort of stinks. Um, but like I could piece together like, okay, this is the right way to defend this defense. And so I wrote my article was like close to like a strategic planning document. Like this is what you do to beat this, this offense. But if you do this instead, you're going to get torn up by it. Um, and then Oregon did, like exactly what I said, um, which I was like, Oh my God, are they reading my articles? Obviously not. Um, but like, uh, what I, I, it was the first game in which, cause BYU, they just played their strategy. They, they didn't, you know, really need, I mean, obviously they did film study, but they didn't really need to make like adjustments to what they wanted to do to beat BYU with Stanford. 
they needed to crack a code in terms of like what their offensive keys were. And I thought that I knew what they were. And I wrote up that if you had it cracked, you could shut this offense down. And I was interested to see if Dan Lanning's staff would do that. And then they, they did. They totally did. In fact, they cracked the code better than I did. They had like the specific key down, like so that, you know, rather than having to back everybody out, they could only ha- they only had to back out one guy because they knew he was the guy getting red and that would force the run and they then just shut down the run. And, and I was like, oh, my God, these guys watch film better than I do. That's like that feels like something that I haven't been able to say about a lot of Pac-12 teams or even maybe Oregon, you know, recently. Um, so that like for me, I know this game, like a lot of fans have probably even forgotten it by now. But for me, I was sort of like, oh, my God, these guys watch film and they they like adjust their strategy, you know, based on what they see. It's not just one of these teams that is like, well, we do what we do and we're going to do that week in and week out and impose our will. You know what I'm talking about? I was going to say that um, one of the things I liked about the offense uh, was that they adjusted to what the defense's weaknesses were, and they would run plays to take advantage of those weaknesses rather than having some set philosophy and, you know, by God, this these are the plays we're going to run. I don't care if they work or not. They decided instead that they were flexible enough to run plays that they had the best chance of working and, and would use different kinds of plays depending on what the opponent's weaknesses were. And I thought I was really impressed with that. Um, you know, for, for a young, what, what then was a young staff and still is a young staff for the most part to not be very set in their ways and to have enough knowledge already of the, of different ways to attack a defense and how the players they had could take advantage of that. Uh, I thought that was really excellent. And then we, you know, we basically saw the same thing the next week against Arizona, you know, on the road. Um, they hadn't really performed well outside of Autzen Stadium, or at least had any blowouts outside of Autzen Stadium, um, you know, until this game. Uh, but they, you know, ran Arizona out of their own house. Um, yeah. You know, and that was a team that, you know, like BYU is dangerous, you know, on offense, you know, when they're throwing the ball. But if you could sort of, you know, crack how they do it, which is really just one type of throw, these sort of in-breaking routes. It's just that they had like four different receivers to throw to. And that was another one where we saw Oregon defensive adaptation where they played a 33-stack defense and, um, you know, put an extra linebacker on the field um, or an extra inside linebacker. They took an OLB off the field um, and uh, and and really made some defensive adjustments to try to take those away. And, and effectively they did, you know, they gave up a couple of explosive plays, but like, otherwise they really robbed Arizona of what was their bread and butter and arguably only real, you know, play. Yeah, and I was like, chance, Oh my only God. chance to win. Yeah. And so it was like, again, I was like, Oh my God, they watch film. Like, Oh my God, they, they adjust their strategy and they, they <laughs> do stuff they hadn't done the previous week. And I was like, Oh, this is a change of pace. And then on offense, you know, again, it was one of these like, you know, masterfully control the clock. Um, and the other thing that was really, you know, great to see. And, and I, and I definitely like put on, uh, you know, in my article as clips is just like the, the, on offense, Oregon was watching what your, you know, where your safeties were. And, you know, if your safeties were playing back, they'd run the ball and they ran the ball super efficiently. Um, yes. And then, you know, Arizona would bring safeties down 
and, uh, and they run RPOs off of the safety. And then they bring both of the safeties down because they were getting absolutely hammered. And then Oregon would throw over the top. And so yeah. it was, uh, and, and, you know, the relevant part about that is that they were willing to throw over the top. And that was the thing that was frustrating about watching the previous 40 years of Oregon football um, was that, like, it felt like the Oregon quarterback, even though I was sure he had the physical capability of throwing the ball deep, like either didn't feel comfortable doing so, or didn't feel licensed to do so, or was just inaccurate doing so, or didn't have the quarterback coaching to see when those plays were open. And that was, you know, what to do. And so like, just like Nix's accuracy, Nix's willingness or his permission to hit the deep balls when the defense was showing you a look, you know, where the deep ball was there was like, oh my God, I didn't know how much I needed that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now they took advantage of the entire field. There, It wasn't, uh, you know, the last several years, for whatever reason, I, my assumption is it was the reins of the coaching staff uh, being pulled back on, on uh, Herbert. And then Brown just didn't, I think, just couldn't do it accurately enough to, to get too upset about the yeah, fact that it know, wasn't happening. But I, but I know those are common fan theories and it's not like they don't have evidence for them. But on the other hand, like there's a lot of complicating factors that make me say like that can't be the whole story, but yeah, Oh boy, probably we'd, be ta- we'd be talking for two hours if we were right. trying to like solve that mystery and, and they're in the rear view mirror anyway, you know, sure. suffice it to say they weren't making those throws uh, properly. Um, and then they, and then with Bo Nix, they were, and it was like, oh, oh, that's what that looks like. Hooray. (laughs) So then they get a bye week. They had the big game against UCLA, who was at that time looking like the best team in the conference. Um, still wound up having a decent year. Um, you know, they, they played a close one against USC. They had an inexplicable loss or, sort of splicable if you watch that team closely uh to arizona um really ate it in the uh in the bowl game in a way that was just bizarre you know dorian thompson robinson wound up entering his career on the bench injured having thrown three picks although the first two were crazy they're like bounced off of a receiver's hands in into defenders hands yeah. which were you know nuts although the third interception that he threw was just like dorian what are you doing that's not right anyway um that game had the lowest Pitt won that game on the lowest post-win game expectancy of any bowl game. Like USC, or excuse me, usually, def, you know, should have won that game. Right. But like, um, but like, you know, uh, UCLA wins nine games in Chip Kelly's fifth season. I I think that that's you know for, with a soft schedule, um, right. You know, they, they played like nobody in the out of conference. Um, you know, they, they wind up going, you know, six and three in conference. Um, they beat Utah, lose to Arizona. You know, basically they, they, they lost to the good teams they played, you know, except for Utah and Washington, which was, you know, with the, you know, what sort of the reputation was built on. Um, I don't know, difficult to assess the UCLA season. Um, you know, I, I, I'm still not really a big fan of Chip Kelly as a program builder. Um, and I think the, you know, the deficiencies in the way that he had his team constructed showed in the game against Oregon, like in particular, like that was a game in which Oregon 
never really stopped UCLA from scoring, but they did stop them from scoring touchdowns. And if you yes. break down, you know, the, the prior to garbage time possessions, you know, the why did UCLA kick field goals on those, you know, possessions, all of them came down to they didn't have a diverse wide receiver core. They had one guy they could throw the ball to and the offensive line wasn't doing a great job, you know, you know, basically between penalties and, you know, Oregon just getting through and, and, for, and, and, and either stopping the run or, or getting scrambles, you know, was putting them in third and long situations that they then miss on and kick a field goal, um, which like, uh, you know, yeah, you have to build a complete team, you know, like this was sort of uh-huh. thing that, that we, you know, we, we saw over and over and over again is that like, there were teams that had individual scary elements, but like they didn't build a complete team. And, you know, even though Oregon didn't have as awesome of the season as they might have, like, I really firmly believe that the reason why they, you know, had a very good season and one that could have been, you know, maybe even a playoff one, if they didn't derp some stuff at the end um was that they had built a complete team um you know that they were uh, uh strong not excellent but strong in all aspects mm-hmm. as opposed to you know we're killer at this one thing and then please don't pay attention to the other stuff that we right. do. Uh, yeah. yeah um yeah that's particularly true on the offense where you know i mean they had good good uh receivers good runners good tight ends uh and and an outstanding offensive line or at least a very good out uh, offensive line um that that you know you couldn't you couldn't focus as a defense you couldn't focus on one aspect of Oregon's offense and say, boy, if we can slow this down or stop this, we've got a chance of keeping them out of the end zone. Which is why I really think that Oregon's defense wasn't as bad as, you know, it had a decent uh, F plus finish, you know, and wasn't as bad as like fans were tearing their head out sort of felt because, you know, they were actually pretty stout at the middle. You couldn't just run for six yards of carry against them every right. play, which Oregon could do to other teams. And it formed like the baseline of their offense. And they weren't really giving up explosive plays, you know? And, and so like, I, I realize, you know, for Oregon fans, a lot of times that's like, that's it's, it's a, a drag to watch, you know, watching them give up six yard passes over and over right. and over again. But like the, that was what you needed to do in order to score points against Oregon. And I can tell you, it's as, at least as frustrating to, to, to opposing offensive coordinators to only be able to move the ball that way. And like mm-hmm. Oregon, on the other hand, had the advantage of going against incomplete defenses that like the only thing they had going for them was a pass rush. That was, you know, true of UCLA right. and of Washington, or the only thing that they had going for them was that they could stop explosive plays. So like Cal, um, you know, was good at that. Or, you know, the only thing that they had going for them, you know, is that they would put seven men in the box and just like crowd you out of running, which is how Utah would shut down, you know, rushing opponents. Um, like it wasn't a one dimensional defense. Like I, we all know what people mean when they say one dimensional offense, but there's such a thing as a one dimensional defense as well. Sure. And Oregon played a bunch of them and exploited the hell out of them. Mm-hmm. And Oregon didn't have a one dimensional defense. They didn't have a great defense in that they didn't have any one dimension they were really good at. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, they, but they were good but, enough at several different things. Right. You so know, the, to prevent the, giving up lots of points. Right, exactly. So there wasn't really like a blueprint to beat Oregon in the way that like I would write a blueprint every week about how to beat 
the upcoming opponent because of the sort of incompleteness of those teams. And, and, you know, and, and so anyway, getting to the team that we're supposed to be talking about, which is UCLA, like, yeah, that's an incomplete team. And it's the reason why I was sort of struggling at the beginning, you know, when we started talking about them to describe their season is like, yeah, cause they're good at a bunch of stuff and bad at a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, and it's sort of scattered across the field. And what was heartening to see about Oregon was that they exploited that. And they had a really gutsy onside kick, you know, to, to control the game, which is the other thing that I really, you know, the, the adaptation of this coaching staff and then the willingness to, to recognize that controlling the clock throughout the game, not just once you've won the game and then you shut it down. That's the, that's the, that's the, 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 the like control the clock 101. That's like the, right. the intro freshman seminar of controlling the clock, but it's, there's a lot more to it. And these guys were like, they walked in day one, first time they'd ever coached. Um, for a lot of these guys, definitely Dan Lanning, but for a lot of these guys, it was the first time they were really taking the reins. And like they were teaching graduate level courses on uh, on clock management throughout the game. And UCLA was was a master class in it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then they have two more sort of gimme games against Cal and Colorado. Those teams are, are you know, they're really falling apart. Um, you know, Cal had just lost to Colorado, um, in Colorado's only win, um, uh, 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 Oregon, you know, they, they took a couple of deep shots, which actually I didn't really think were the cornerbacks fault that just like, you know, Hey, you know, the, 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 the quarterback was willing to throw a 50, 50 ball to a really good wide receiver and the really good wide receiver caught the ball. Um, And like, I don't want to say they got lucky, but like, hey, look, you flip a coin, you know, it's going to come up heads half the time. Yeah, sometimes you know? you're like, going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, but eventually, you know, just sort of reality and the talent level just sort of asserted this, the, itself. Cal's whole thing on defense is they absolutely do not allow you to have as explosive plays. And so, again, I was impressed by by the Oregon coaching staff sort of adapting to that and like the way that they manipulated them into to, so that the short throws that they did allow would then go big, like, you know, right. a, a five yard catch would gain 15 yards or, you know, six yard catch would gain 20 yards, like, cause they'd let you have the short stuff. Then they'd figure they'd be able to tackle you, um, and keep you from going big. But then Oregon, you know, read my article to see examples of how, but like right. Oregon was making them go big because they were releasing guys downfield to block. Like they knew what the play was going to be. Um, and so, you know, again, I was impressed with the adaptation and then, oh, then, then they just steamrolled Colorado. I don't know how much we were going to talk about. That was the craziest, the craziest number of trick plays, I think maybe have, have ever been run by an Oregon team. And I mean, they got, everybody scored a a touchdown. Nick's got a, got a ball. He scored as a receiver. Mm -hmm. Uh, you had offensive linemen scoring touchdowns. You had linebackers scoring touchdowns with the offense. Uh, it was just, uh, pretty amazing yeah he almost scored one on the defense well yeah that too (laughs) yeah you know that was a game that was interesting because i really felt like in particular they were putting stuff on film to mess with their final three Uh right and and i felt like they were practicing some stuff so that you know when the chips were down against some of these you know upcoming good opponents they would have stuff that they had practiced and used during the season. And I mean, this goes back to the BYU game where they were using the pistol formation for an entire drive. Um, Like every single game they were putting in new stuff up through 
you know, the, the, the ninth game of the year against Colorado. And in fact, they poured it on, you know, against Colorado. Um, and, and, well, I'll, I'll stop there. Let's take a break. Uh, and when we come back, we'll talk about the last four games of the season. So then that's what I was surprised by in the last, uh, you know, three games of the regular season. And then even the bowl was that all that stuff, you know, every, all, all the, the trick plays, the new stuff, the, you know, we have a different formation that we introduce every game. Um, they didn't wind up using much of it. Um, you know, they, uh, you know, against Washington, we saw the clock management stuff. They went on that death drive when they were up by four points. Um, you know, like everything that we saw throughout the year really just like came out and cranked up to 11 against Washington. They couldn't stop the pass, but they did actually do an okay job in the red zone. You know, you know, they forced field goals a couple of times to the point where even though they were making some mistakes and letting them march down the field, and even though they had that stupid Emery and Henry, you know, trick play, which again, like they had, you know, it was rather than relying on the fun stuff that they had installed, like Josh Connerly touchdowns and Mm -hmm. fullback dies with the linebacker and doing fun stuff out of the eye formation. You know, like I had this like running thing that I was talking about during, you know, like all the different plays that they ran out of the I formation. And then just all of it sort of disappeared against Washington. And instead, they ran a stupid Emory and Henry play as the like, well, this is the 10th game in which I'm going to introduce new stuff. Yeah. I was like, I, you know, at that point, I was like, I, okay, I'm no longer having fun with this, Kenny, like with the, the new stuff. Like, why don't, you know, use the stuff that you've already, inst- you know, we've got trick plays at home. You know, uh, (laughs) um, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I didn't like that. They gave up points on that. I didn't like that. They weren't able to finish that death drive with a touchdown. I didn't like the Bo Nix got injured. I didn't like that. They, you know, they got a touchdown with that draw play earlier, but you knew that Washington was ready for it. And sure enough, they were, they made the stop and Nick's got hurt, which is really crazy. I don't really understand how his ankle got hurt on that play, but anyway, um, like, yeah, and then the whole thing just sort of came crashing down, you know, at that point, you know, against a rival at home. I mean, just it stings. It stings real right. bad. You yeah, know, there's just nothing. It's, it's like the Georgia Joe game. Whittington, like, like, slipping on fourth down. I mean, just like yeah. all of it felt like all the good vibes that were going in Oregon's direction all season long after the Georgia game. You know, eight straight games in which they score 41-plus points. Like, all of it just sort of like, you know, it's – you know, if Oregon was living on the good side, you know, of good luck stuff, like a bunch of bad luck stuff happens to him in this game and, mm-hmm. and just like, Oh God, it sucked. Um, and, and then they go in against Utah, you know, the team that ran them off the field twice, you know, the previous year and God, Utah was a weird team, man. Did you, did you read my article preview in Utah? Yes. Yeah. Like I really thought that that was a, like I was, I was astonished that their offense finished as successfully as they did, because I really didn't think that offense was very good. I thought it was a very predictable offense, and mm-hmm. like just like, just like my Stanford uh, preview article, I felt like I was writing a, a like a strategic planning document for you know here's how you shut down Utah's offense, and then Oregon's coaching staff did it, and I was like, oh good, like I have an unofficial role in the staff, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But like, you know, Oregon limited the Utah to 10 offensive points. They got, you know, another one on that stupid turnover, which again, Kenny, enough with the trick plays, you know, like, right. yeah, exactly. 
Uh, exactly. We pro- we've proven this stuff doesn't, you know, isn't isn't 100 percent effective. So if you have things that are closer to 100 percent effective. Let's go with those. Well, it's more like, you know, I mean, my attitude was like, yeah, I dig you putting in new stuff every week up until a point. But then like, is this, is this become like an obsession that like every week you're going to add a new thing rather than, okay, we already installed this fun new thing. Let's do it again. You know, like I felt like there was a point where you sort of, you should cut that off and, and instead, you know, go with what. Um, you know, the, the, the diversity that you've already built is, is diverse enough, like going beyond this point, you're in Chip Kelly territory where it's like, Ooh, I'm doing wacky new playbook stuff every week. So anyway, like, yeah, I sort of felt like karma a bit that Oregon gave up, like, you know, almost half of the points that they gave up in that entire game on that stupid play. Um, so anyway, um, but like in terms of shutting Utah's offense down, like, I, you know, I, for me, the the question wasn't why was Oregon able to do that. The question was why weren't every other Pac-12 defense able to do mm-hmm. that? Like, right. Um, I really sort of like more than anything else that that game really crystallized. Like, I really feel like most Pac-12 defensive coordinators are just bad at their jobs because, like, this was really obvious how you shut this 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 offense down. Um, because you know the quarterback has has tunnel vision you know he only wants to throw to one guy and the way that their run game work has a bunch of tells like i can't illustrate it without a whiteboard but like oregon's defense knew it and i put a bunch of clips in my article of like they know by alignment and you know where the tight end is Mm -hmm. right you know the The a that's coming it's not yeah not only that it's going to be a run but it's going to be a run to this gap and mm-hmm. that, you know, the reason why, why Casey Rogers and some other guys had a bunch of tackles for loss was that they were, you know, they were slanting immediately off the, they knew the play was going to be. And actually the funny thing was that Utah had a pretty efficient rushing performance, you know, on balance, they were actually successful on a whole lot of their running plays. And Andy Ludwig, uh, uh, Utah's offensive coordinator, uh, used to be Oregon's in, in 02 to 04 during the times that oh boy it was tough to watch um Mm. like andy ludwig probably should have stuck with with his inside run game but he um got scared off because oregon was getting all these tackles for loss and he didn't seem to understand why but it was like i did and dan lanning did um you know because we'd cracked the code um i mean not together we weren't collaborating but both of us individually had um and it wasn't difficult and the fact that other Pac-12 defense coordinators in Penn State did, I can tell you that from watching the Rose Bowl, a lot of people are like, well, that game ended when Cam Rising was out. And I'm like, nah, that game ended when Andy Ludwig wasn't fired. Um, Penn State's defense <laughs> is way too good to, 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 to you know, that they, they were, you know, yeah, in a sense, Utah was only scoring points because Cam Rising was in. That's because Cam Rising was scrambling. You know, like right. that was the, the Andy Ludwig thing, which, you know, goes back to, to Tyler Huntley and, and, and it's just like that dude's only able to do his stuff when he's got a quarterback who's, who's bailing him out. And he's got like the three, the unicorn of three great tight ends, which like they were down to half a good tight end by, you know, by the end of that season. Um, it was like, just what a predictable offense. Um, and, and Oregon predicted it. And I was like, Oh, it's just like Stanford and Arizona and and some of these other teams where it's like, yeah, you can predict where that play is going to be and just shut them down. And I was like, happy to see it. It was like, Hey, they watch film. (laughs) Yeah, it was a, it was a good experiment, especially coming off the tough loss. Um, and, and the two tough losses to Utah the previous year, uh, it's gratifying to, you know, to see them, 
beat a team that kind of had their number uh, the year before. And then the other thing that I'll say about the, you know, the Utah offensive performance is that, you know, obviously Bonix was injured. He was not able to run the ball. Oregon's offense, rushing offense is predicated on being able to run the, the, the quarterback being a threat to run. It's yes. just the nature of their blocking scheme, um, which like it's too late in the year to like come up with a new blocking scheme. Uh, sorry. And, and Utah is well situated to take advantage of that because they against 11 personnel, they play seven in the box, which is, which if you have a running quarterback, if you're an 11 personnel, that means that you have five offensive linemen plus the tight end blocker, plus the running back, plus the quarterback. If the quarterback is able to eliminate the seventh defender in the box by reading him and taking him out of the play, then you have a hat on a hat for blocking and you can destroy him. Um, but if that seventh defender in the box just ignores the quarterback and goes straight for the running back, then the defense has a numbers advantage. And guess what? That was what was happening, you know, against Utah. Um, and and other teams that play lighter boxes, it might not have been a problem, but like Utah. Yeah, no, like that was possibly the worst team to play with this, um, run blocking scheme with an injured quarterback. Um, and yet Oregon did okay. You know, a couple of plays, they, they, they engineered a, a few things. The, the running back broke tackle a couple of times. They, they were throwing a lot of screen passes, um, which actually their outside, um, screen game was pretty bad this year. Their perimeter blocking wasn't very good, but then they yeah, figured it, it out good. and they were running some inside screens and some Texas routes, which Utah's defense is not set up to defend very well, which again, that was in my article. Um, but that one, I you know, uh, they they found ways with an injured quarterback to to hit passes and to hit some you know stuff that was working, even though you know their their great advantage, which was a dominant run game, you know, wasn't really you know present. So you know that was heartening too. And then Oregon State, I mean, Jesus, what a bizarre game because you yeah, know it was crazy. For- for one half and then half of the third quarter. So five eighths of the game, um, right. it was going exactly as charting predicted. Um, I mean, like exactly, you know, Oregon success rates, Oregon state's success rates, you know, I, you know, put them up against each other and they come out exactly what you expect them to be. Um, and then Oregon starts committing some special teams disasters, like four consecutive special teams disasters where they give up a, a, a big return uh, they fumble a punt. Uh, they have a, you know, return where they take it on like one yard line. Um, you know, a, a face mask penalty. It was kind of a phantom one, but whatever. It was just like, oh my God, you know, and Oregon State would get these short fields. And basically Oregon State, they stopped throwing the ball. You know, after the defense gets yeah. three turnovers, they completely stopped throwing the ball. They ran 16 times to finish the game. Oregon stopped zero over the 16 plays. And I mean, I don't have an explanation. I still don't. I, you know, I watched that film three times now, you know, once live and twice in study. I still don't have the all 22 and I, I really don't have a good idea of why it is. They, they, you know, but they just, I don't know, man. I, yeah, I couldn't, I, I, you know, watching it was, it was just like, what, what are you doing? Why are, why did you stop tackling? Why did you stop running the ball? Why did you stop? You know, I mean, it was just it, it, the craziest thing about it is, you know, Oregon state, I think completed six passes the entire game. And as you note, had stopped throwing the ball entirely. No, mm-hmm. there wasn't a single person in the stadium that didn't know that the next play by Oregon State's offense was going to be a rush. And yet Oregon could not get in position 
to be successful in stopping those plays despite i mean and it's exactly the opposite of what you were talking about earlier where i mean and and so maybe they don't have the cues that they have for some of these other offenses but you know it's the same kind of idea it's like they go from one game where they know every rushing play that's coming or most of them and they can get in position to stop them to seemingly being taken by surprise on every rushing play and and, and, you know, like, let's not take anything away from, from Jonathan Smith. I mean, that was a gutsy performance and he had his guys up, sure. you know, for that game to take advantage, you know, but he, but that's what needed to happen. You know, like Oregon needs to just like stop playing football for 16 right. plays and a bunch of special team stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that team wound up being, you know, they won 10 games, they won their bowl game. Although I don't think Florida really showed up, you know, Washington, you know, also, you know, I think won 11 games. They, they beat Texas. That Texas team sucks. Um, I don't <laughs> advanced stats are in love with that Texas team every year. There's really? one team that advanced stats just inexplicably falls in love with, um, <laughs> that like it does not match the eye test at all. And like everybody, you know, in, in my job, who's like, who, who believes in and supports, you know, an advanced statistical project and does something which is at least similar to advanced stats, you know, it, you know, and is like, look for 129 out of 131 teams, you know, it's doing an excellent job. It's just, yeah, there's a bug in the system, you know, once yeah. a year. And so Texas was that team, you know, this year. <laughs> um, anyway, like I'm not, you know, I, I think that Jonathan Smith's a great coach. I think that you know, Kalen DeBoer is a great t- coach. Those teams are incomplete teams They're, you know, th- and Oregon, um, you know, was playing as good or better football against them until they weren't, you know, like, and if any right. Washington or Oregon state fans are listening to this and you're pounding the table and screaming at me for being a homer, like, I'm sorry, look at the post, you know, you know, look at the post game win expectancy rates, look at the success rates, like, you know, Oregon for most of the game, you know, was winning up until the point where Oregon, you know, stopped playing well, you know, where, you know, the, I, I think uh, against Washington, uh, you know, they have a bad snap, then the quarterback gets injured and then the, and then Oregon staff blinks and kicks the field goal. I think that's a major strategic mistake. They should have gone for it on fourth down. Um, and then they give up a big pass and then Noah Whittington slips. It's just sort of like that series of events has to occur because if Oregon scores a touchdown on that drive, the, you know, the end of the death drive, Oregon mm-hmm. scores a touchdown. Then there's four minutes left on the clock. Oregon's up by 11. doesn't matter what Washington does. Even if they score a touchdown immediately, which they did wind up doing in reality, Oregon gets the ball back with like three minutes and they just run the ball. You know, it requires mm-hmm. Nick's getting hurt and kicking the field goal and giving up that huge play and Noah Whittington slipping all of those things things has to happen in order for Washington to win that game. And then against Oregon state, like if they stop one, one of those 16 rushing plays, if one of those special teams disasters doesn't occur, Oregon still wins that game. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there it's, it's a, you know, it's frustrating. That they lose to two rivals. It's frustrating because doing so keeps them out of the playoffs and then keeps them out of the conference championship game. And USC looked very beatable in that conference championship game. Um, right. You know, hell, they got blown out by a Utah team that Oregon had just finished beating um, with an injured quarterback. Um, Like, you know, like I I know those sting real bad. And I also firmly believe that Kalen DeBoer and Jonathan Smith are fantastic coaches. And I was like, I was ringing the bell for Jonathan Smith after his first season in which he didn't have very good record. I was more up on Jonathan Smith than Oregon State fans were at the end of the 2018 season at, uh, 
during the 2021 season before anyone knew that Jimmy Lake was going to get fired. I a predicted that Jimmy Lake was going to get fired and B said on a podcast, you can go find me. I was like, I sure hope that Washington doesn't hire Kalen DeBoer. Cause that would be, you know, that he'd be a really great coach for them. Like I, I'm not trying to take anything away from them, but Oregon was outplaying those teams and would have won had not Oregon let the opponent in like uh, yes. i know that every homer in the universe says that about every loss that they have but i mean jesus christ it really is true of those yeah, teams. Well, some of that and you can tell that you know there's a difference between um it, it, the defense did something that forced you to make a mistake and you just made a mistake yeah yeah exactly without it without any help and that's these two games that was o- oregon had plenty of mistakes that had nothing to do with the two teams they were playing against or any, and some of them are, but most of them are just screw ups, uh, unfor, unfor, I like to call unforced errors, which is what they call them in tennis, um, where nothing, there's no real reason for you to do this, like Whittington slipping. That's mm-hmm. nothing that, you know, no, no player from Washington spooked him and forced him to slip. He just slipped, um, yeah. an unforced error. So then they finished the season uh, against North Carolina. We don't really need to talk about North Carolina's record because we know what it was. You know, that was their last (laughs) game too. Um, You know, that that was another team like they had played a number of where they kind of, you know, just like BYU and Arizona and a few others where they have a really fantastic passing game. And then that's it. That's the entire team. Um, You know, Oregon was, uh, uh, you know, controlling the game uh, until they threw the most like improbable interception in the universe. Um, And and then, you know, that was a game where I think, uh, you know, basically the middle eight strategy failed them where they were going in to score when that interception happened. And had they done that and remember, they they won the flip and deferred. So they were going to get the ball. So like they were about to put that vice lock on them. And then the crazy interception happens. And then, and and then, basically, Oregon goes three empty possessions where they they needed to. In my opinion, what happened was they needed to switch strategies. They needed to play the we're behind strategy, not we're ahead or we're in control strategy. Mm-hmm. And and they didn't, you know. And I, I sort of feel like okay, they were missing Kenny Dillingham there. Like you know, I I feel like Dillingham for the criticisms that I've had for him, in terms of like knowing when to hit the the brakes and when to hit the gas. Like he would have known to hit the gas. Yeah. And you know, now eventually by the end of the game, the last two possessions, they were forced to hit the gas. And then hey. Look, surprise, you know, <laughs> you know is a really good quarterback and, we're gonna <laughs> and they have really good protection and, oh, you know, the, that defense was not good and had a bunch of, you know, guys missing from it. And so Oregon shredded them on two. It was just like, yeah, you should have been doing that from the first snap of the second half, guys. Right. Like, yeah, exactly. couldn't have taken you three drives to figure out. Like, yeah. <laughs> all right. I detailed all this stuff in my article. Obviously, this game is pretty fresh, you know, since it was just played a week yes. ago. Um, but like, you know, I, 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 I wrote this one up, you know, the, 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 
the the it was a nice capstone to 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 the end of the season sort of washed out some of the, the those those painful losses let Oregon finish with 10 wins uh you know I I think we'll 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 close down the podcast there like overall uh, do you think that this was a successful you know 10 win season or, or did those rivalry losses like hurt too bad for for you to be able to say that no that you know that part hurts but but I I think at the beginning of the, when Dan Lanning was hired at the beginning of the season, if you told Oregon fans, "Hey, this team is going to go ten and three and win a bowl game," uh, I think people would have thought, "Wow, that's that's pretty good." With a completely new staff and all the turmoil that's been going on here the last few months, uh, and you know that the ins and outs of the portal and the ins and outs of the previous staff leaving and some players leaving at the same time and then others coming in and and just the chaos of that whole switchover uh i think they showed a lot of of ability to calm everything right down and go do what they needed to do and 10 wins is i think always a successful season all right i think that's going to do it for us this week uh thanks for joining us everybody we'll catch you on the flip side